Okay, guys, I'm hoping that this is actually working. I'm texting Mark to be sure. Um, it's kind of weird. I was actually hoping to see some of you through uh, through Zoom and at least have the gallery view. So I have some folks that I, I know are there. It's weird to I see some people popping in. So this is good. Um, any technological issues, guys, you're going to have to put on me. I've, I've never done a Facebook Live before. So um, it's, it's on me if this... Uh, if there's trouble with this, but I think I finally got it. So um, hopefully this is this is going to work. Here, let me fix my screen a little bit now that it's working. Okay. Um, so again, guys, thank you for your your patience uh, with this. This has been an interesting day in terms of um, in terms of our church gathering together. Who could have foreseen anyone uh, that Zoom was going to completely go down uh, across the world? Um, and, and completely uh, throw our plans and the plans of countless people everywhere. I know other, a lot of other churches use Zoom for their meetings, so I'm sure they're having to get creative as well. Uh, but it is the nature of the game. And so thankful for Facebook Live. And again, I hope this, uh, this actually works well. Um, I'm, like I said, I'm used to seeing people even when I was doing classes online. You know, students didn't really like to show their faces, but I knew they were there. Um, so I can see you guys over there on the right uh, who have joined so far. So that's good. Um, but I wish we were doing this at least on Zoom even more. I wish we could do it in person uh, because there's just a dynamic to uh, to face to face um, that's that's lost somewhat uh, when you can't see each other. So but I'm going to read Psalm 145 and then I'm going to pray and then we're going to get into this. So let's let's read Psalm 145, a song of praise of David. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is Yahweh, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another, and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty, and on your wondrous works I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness, and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. Yahweh is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Yahweh is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Yahweh, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. Yahweh is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. Yahweh upholds all who were falling and raises up all who were bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. Yahweh is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. Yahweh is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. 
He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. Yahweh preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of Yahweh and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. Let's pray. Our great God, we come before you thankful for an opportunity to meet together as a church family. A little unorthodox in how we planned it, but God, we know that you are the sovereign God who reigns um, over technology issues. Uh, Lord, we are reminded how small we are. God, we are so small in comparison to you and all our works. God, they are not that impressive. God, because as you showed this morning, Lord, you can shut it down and we are left helpless. And God, help us to come humbly before you, recognizing that you and you alone are God and we are not. God, we thank you, though, for another platform to do this today. And Lord, we just commit our hearts and our minds to you. Uh, Lord, we want to hear you speak through your word by your spirit. God, that's how you speak. Give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see the glory of God in the pages of the scriptures. Lord, give us eyes to see the glory of our Savior. Um, God, help us to draw near to you. And we trust that you will draw near to us. God, may your word go forth uh, in power to convict of sin, to, to lead to new life, to build up um, those who are broken, to encourage the faint-hearted, to strengthen the weak. God, in so many other potential ways that we need to hear from you. But God, we know that your word gives life. And so we pray that you would give life uh, to each one of us in these few moments as we consider this amazing psalm, Psalm 145. Lord, help me be faithful uh, to what is in the text and to the whole uh, story and emphasis of the Bible. And uh, God, may you be honored and glorified and Christ be magnified uh, through these few moments together. Thank you for it, God. Thank you for our church. Thank you, God, that we uh, are privileged to belong to a, an assembly that keeps your word uh, as the highest priority, uh, Lord, in our gatherings. And Lord, we, we pray that you will honor that desire on our part, uh, Lord, as we desire to honor and glorify you. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, Psalm 145. Um, the author of this psalm obviously is David. Uh, it's the last of the psalms that he wrote in the book of Psalms. He actually wrote 73 of the psalms uh, out of the 150. And the New Testament actually attributes two more to him. Uh, I believe it's Psalm 2 and Psalm 95. Even though it doesn't have of David at the beginning of it, it the New Testament actually attributes him or attributes those psalms to him as the author. And so I think it's probably a good idea to see this psalm is likely written uh, near the end of David's life. As he's walked with God for, for a number of years, he's reflecting back on, on God's faithfulness and being the, the musician, being the artist that he is. Um, we, we see just this amazing uh, dedication to praising God, because that's what this psalm is about. It's a psalm of praise. It's the only psalm in the Psalter or in the book of Psalms that actually has this title, a psalm of praise. Now, we know that the psalms are filled. They're absolutely filled with praise to God. 
but this one in particular is dedicated to praising God. And so we're going to see this in a number of ways uh, and have our hearts encouraged, our lives challenged through it. Now, what's interesting, you know, Psalms uh, don't, you know, they're a particular type of, of Hebrew uh, literature. They're, they're poetic in so many ways. And so the structure of, of Psalm 145 is a poetic structure. It's an acrostic. Uh, so the, the first verse starts with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and it moves on down successively all the way to the end of the Hebrew alphabet in verse 21. Now, if you're an astute person, you know there's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, and there's only 21 verses in this psalm. Well, I read between verses 13 and 14, there's actually uh, you know some, some struggle debate on is there actually a 22nd verse uh, the Septuagint has it, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, um, and a couple of Hebrew manu or one Hebrew manuscript and another and another ancient manuscript contain an extra verse in this. Not sure if it's there. Um, it's maybe not likely, uh, but not impossible as well. But it still is mostly an acrostic psalm. Um, an acrostic again is you know you you each each uh, stanza each line starts with a different letter, um, and that's what we see here. Uh, so, as we jump into this, again, this is a psalm of praise. And so the whole psalm is about praising God. And so as we begin looking at this psalm in verses 1 and 2, we see kind of starting things off, we see David's determination to praise God. His determination to praise God. And again, he says, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day... I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. So to extol, it simply means to lift high, to, to raise up in, in one's speech and in one's thoughts and in one's words. And so David starts off this psalm of praise by saying, I will extol you, my God and king, or my God, the king. And David is the king in Israel. And so he knows the importance of his kingship in the world. And we're going to look more at that later, uh, the connection here between the kingdom of God and the, the, you know, God's rule and God's rule through people. But here, let's just look initially at the fact that David is the king, but he recognizes that there is a greater king over him, and it is God. Uh, God is the ultimate king in the universe. It's not David. It's not any earthly power. It is God and God alone. And so David is going to lift high in his praises the one true king. He is the king overall. And then he says this. He says in verse 1, I will bless your name forever and ever. And then verse 2, every day I will bless you. And so what we see here is an intention to bless God regardless of what the day brings. Now, let's think about what blessing means, and then we'll pick back up on that thought. Spurgeon actually had a really good insight here that, that was helpful. Spurgeon said this. He said, to bless God is to praise him with personal affection for him and a wishing well to him. Now, it might seem weird to us to say we want to wish God well, but when we think of blessing someone else, bestowing a blessing. We, we think of having an affection for that person and desiring things to go well for them. Well, it's not wrong to think that way about God if we're thinking rightly. So it might seem weird or awkward at first to say we wish God well, but 
we do wish, we do desire, we do yearn that things would go well for God. Now, we know as a church that God is absolutely sovereign. He will accomplish all his good pleasure. None of his purposes and plans will ultimately fail. He will do everything that he sets his heart to do. So God will do everything. He, he will not fail. Uh, he will do well in everything, and he will be glorified. He will get glory in all the world. But what's going on here is our hearts coming into line with that actual reality. We want what God is going to do. And so when we bless God, we say we wish God well, it's, it's essentially the same as saying we want to see the glory of God shining forth in the world, in our lives, in the life of our church, um, in our city, in our nation, and everywhere. So to wish God well, to bless God, we must have an affection in our hearts for God, and we must also desire to see the glory of God shining forth in the world. And so it's as if David is saying, now again, keeping in mind, he says, I will bless you every day. Every day I will bless you. It's as if David is saying, I will praise God with personal affection for him and with a desire that his glory be shown, his glory be magnified, whether I have the best day I could dream of or the worst day that I could ever dread. And he's saying this before either of those days happen. He doesn't know what today, what that day is going to bring or what any day is going to bring. Only God knows that. But David is saying, when he says, I will bless you every day, every day I will bless you, he's saying, regardless of what happens, I am going to bless God. Why? Because David understands that God is worthy of blessing no matter how David's day goes. He is determining ahead of time because he knows God to be worthy, that he is going to bless God. He's going to live for the glory of God. He's going to desire the manifestation of the glory of God and that God be made, be seen as more and more glorious and his name be made more and more famous in the world. That is his determination so that whether he, again, has the best day he could dream of or the worst day that he could dread, he is going to bless God. Think with me about Job chapter 1. If You don't have to turn there unless you can turn really fast. Job chapter 1, remember what happened to Job. Here's a righteous man. He, he is the most righteous man um, alive. He, he is faithful to God. He, he does everything that he's supposed to do uh, in terms of righteousness and obeying God and all of that. Obviously, he's not a perfect person, but in terms of a, a righteous human being walking with God, we'd say Job is a man after God's own heart. Uh, you know, for his time. And, and Job, as you know, in the first chapter, he gets everything taken from him. He loses all of his wealth, and then he has all of his children taken. That's like the worst day that you could dread. It's, or one of the worst days that you could dread. It's, a, it's terrible to think about losing all your wealth and then all of your children. What does Job do? Let's look at what Job does. Job chapter 1, verses 20 through 22 says, Job arose. He gets, he gets news of this, that he's lost everything and his kids have died. It says, Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. Would that be my response? Would that be your response if you got news like that? To fall on the ground 
and worship. And this is what Job says. He says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Same word. Same word. David says, Every day I will bless you, regardless of the day. Job says, In the midst of the worst day of his life, I, I am blessing God. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then, the last comment by the author, In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. So we have to settle in our hearts ahead of time that whether we get the day we dream of, that opportunity that we dream of, that job that we dream of, that position that we dream of, um, or whatever else we may greatly desire, whether we get that or we get the very thing that we dread the most, we dare not charge God with wrong. Job understood and it settled in his heart ahead of time that God was worthy to be blessed and praised no matter what. Why? Job was not privy to all that was going on behind the scenes and neither are we. God is doing so many things through our circumstances and we might be aware. He, he might be doing 10,000 things and we might be aware of three or four of them. And so we cannot judge God or charge him with wrong as somehow He's done wrong in a situation that we didn't want to happen. We got to determine ahead of time that God will only do right and therefore he is worthy of blessing no matter what. All right, but let's move on. David not only says every day I will bless you. He says I will do so. I will bless you and praise you forever and ever. And that's basically a determination to both bless and praise Yahweh without ceasing and without end. And so if we understand God rightly, then ceaselessly blessing him and praising him without end is not an activity that we're going to grow tired of or wearied in doing. It will be one of our primary engagements in all of eternity as we dwell with God in his immediate presence forever. In fact, blessing God and praising God forever will only become more sweeter and more satisfying as the endless years of eternity and the ages roll on. We will only grow more satisfied in worshiping God. So we see David's determination. Again, this is a longer intro. Other parts of this aren't going to go quite as quick. If you're like, man, these are the first three verses and we're uh, 18 minutes in. What is this going to do? Um, how long are we going to be here? No, we won't go this long on everything. Um, but these first few verses set up so much that we need to give attention to. And so we see David's determination to praise God. And now we see a declaration of the unsearchable or the unfathomable greatness of Yahweh, the Lord, the one true God. David says, talking about the greatness of God, that his greatness is unsearchable. It should humble us into the dust to acknowledge that God is so great, so vast. He's so high, so deep. That had we 10 million lifetimes, we would but scratch the surface of the praise that he is due for his infinite greatness. Listen again to how Spurgeon says this. The best adoration of the unsearchable is to own him to be so and close the eyes in reverence before the excessive light of his glory. Not all the minds of all the centuries shall suffice to search out the unsearchable riches of God. He is past finding out. And therefore his deserved praise is still above and beyond all that we can render to him. 
And so as we start to think about the infinite greatness of our God, we have to first understand it is unsearchable. We cannot fathom it to its fullness. But even though the greatness of God, this infinite greatness is unsearchable, it is not unknowable. Because what we do know about God never contradicts what we do not know. We may never plumb the depths of God's greatness, but we do encounter its reality. Because God makes himself known in real, concrete ways, giving us as his people the privilege and the opportunity to praise him for his greatness. So in this psalm, we are going to see David praising the greatness of God in at least five clear ways. It's kind of tough to, to break this psalm up um, into sections, but I think um, I'm not alone in this and in seeing kind of five distinct ways. And so for the sake of an outline, what I did is I kind of turned these points into exhortations based upon how David praises the greatness of God. And so the first exhortation based on this, this is verses four through seven, is the exhortation to praise the greatness of God's works. Again, look at the text. It says, one generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. There's kind of a twofold emphasis here, I think, that we don't need to miss. This take, this commending of, of the mighty works of God uh, as a way of praising him, this commending of his mighty works takes place first in the home, but also in the assembly of God's people. So think about that. We are to commend our God, to praise his greatness, draw attention to his mighty works, first in our homes, and then secondly in our churches. Uh, we, we dare not neglect either one. Scripture is clear. Uh, parents, um, you know, it is our responsibility to commend what God has done to our children. It's not primarily somebody else's job to do that. It is our calling, our privilege, our responsibility to make God known to our children and to tell them who he is and what he has done. But secondarily, and I'm not going to say it's, it's the church is almost just as important. Um, it's a different focus here. But in the church, we have to commend the works of our God to the next generation. By God's grace, we have a, a pretty diverse uh, age range in our church. I mean, we, we skew a little bit to the younger side, but we still have a good diversity of age range. And so um, even as we're commending God's works to our children at home, we also, as we are gathered together, we are commending who God is and what he's done to the next generation coming up in the church. And so we must be zealous for this. We must be consistently engaged in this. Why? Because God is worthy. God is worthy and his works are worthy of being commended, being told um, for all the great things that they are to the next generation, the next generation in terms of our family and the next generation in terms of Christians. Now, quickly, what are the mighty works of God that we declare? I think simply in a very summary way, we could say it's God's works in creation. God's works in his providence, by which providence is simply his purposeful sovereignty, uh, by which he governs and rules the world. 
um, and guides all of history. So God's mighty works in creating the world, God's mighty works in guiding and ruling the world, and then even more significantly, God's mighty works in redemption, in sending his son to be our savior and redeemer, to bring us back out of the penalty of our sin, out from under his wrath, and back into a right relationship with him. And again, something as we think about this, you know, we can tend to fall in the mindset that say, if we just do X, Y, Z the way we're supposed to, then we'll get the result we hope for. An important point that we have to take note of is this. It is ultimately only by God's sovereign grace that the next generation in the home and in the church will fulfill verses 6 and 7. Because again, what does it say? They, it's talking about the next generation. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds. And then verse 7, they shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. We can't create that no matter how earnest we are, how humble we are, how energetic we are, how articulate we are. God is the one who produces faith and endurance. And so as we commend, as we labor in commending God's works to the next generation, we need to be saturating that labor with earnest prayer to God to make the labor effective in the next generation. So let's pray daily that, that God would, would not just give us the opportunity to commend those works, but that God by the Spirit would make those works effective so that the hearts of the next generation are gripped in the same way that our hearts are gripped. So that's the first exhortation. Praise the greatness of God's works. The second exhortation is verses 8 and 9. Praise the greatness of God's character. Look again. The Lord, Yahweh, is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Yahweh, the Lord, is good to all. His mercy is over all that he has made. This first part, verses 8 or verse 8, is a direct quotation or at least allusion to, it's a slightly different wording, of Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. If you're familiar with Exodus 34, that's when Moses had said to God up on the mountain, God, show me your glory. And so this is what God does. When God passes by, remember, God hides Moses in this cleft in the rock and he hides him with his hand because he's like, I'm going to make my glory pass by you. And you, you can't see my face because you die. I'll let you see my back. And so God hides Moses as he passes by. And then as he, as he passes by, removes his hand, he proclaims his character to Moses. So when God reveals his glory, he tells Moses something about his character, who he is as God. And so this is what God tells Moses. He says, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So when we think of a display of the glory of God, we need to think of learning the character of God. It's not just this physical manifestation whereby we're physically and in our senses overwhelmed by the manifestation of God's glory. But when God showed Moses his glory, he revealed his character. He told him, this is what I'm like, Moses. This is what I'm like. This is who I am as Yahweh, the great I am. So let's look at a couple of these, these phrases, these descriptor words pretty quickly here. Gracious. It says that Yahweh is gracious. That means he shows <clears throat> undeserved favor and kindness. 
Moses didn't deserve to see the glory of God. Moses, as righteous as a, of a man as Moses was, he didn't deserve to see the glory of God. None of us deserve to see the glory of God. None of us deserve anything good from God because we're sinners. We've rebelled against Him. And we continue to do so if we're honest with ourselves. And yet God says to His people, I am gracious, meaning I will continue to show you undeserved favor and unearned kindness. And we could even add uncompelled love. He also says the Lord is merciful. That means He's abundantly kind. He's moved to show pity. You know, mercy, you know, tends to be more, biblically speaking, um, showing pity, pity in action. When you see someone in need, you're moved to go help that person. That's showing pity, taking pity on someone and helping them. And God is saying, that's how I am towards you all the time. Because again, this is in the context of a covenant relationship. And we'll say more on that here in a minute too. He also says, slow to anger. So when you think of God, one quick thing that should pop in your mind is that God is slow to anger. I hadn't planned on this when I was studying, but it actually connects to the, 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 the uh, confessional that I did last week in James chapter 1, where James says, Know this, my beloved brothers, let each one of you, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Think about the fact that being slow to anger in our lives and toward the people we love and that we're around is one of the chief ways we display the character of God to them. That is absolutely humbling to me because as a dad, there are times where my kids can get on my last nerve. And the first thing that pops in my mind is not, well, let's be slow to anger here. I mean, any, any parents can amen this. You know what I'm talking about. Um, sometimes your buttons have just been pushed and there's none left to push and that's it. But in those moments, I have an opportunity and you do as well. We want to show our kids what God is like. Let's be slow to anger because that's how God is with us every day. And if we consider the magnitude of our sin against God, that vastly overshadows and overwhelms any bad attitudes or disobedience on the part of our kids. Doesn't mean they get away with it, but it does mean we have an opportunity to display the character of God in a very powerful way. Not only is he slow to anger, he's abounding in steadfast love. This is referring to chesed, God's faithful, loyal, covenant love for his people. Yahweh's chesed is not only what we as believers in the church rest in, our experience of it is heightened, it's intensified in the new covenant. Uh, for in Jesus, remember this, we have a greater covenant. We have a greater promise. We have a greater covenant mediator. We have a greater high priest. We have a greater sacrifice. We have greater access to God. And when I say that, that, that might seem a little overstatement. But if the new covenant that we have is greater than the old covenant, and the book of Hebrews and the rest of the New Testament is clear that it is, then <clears throat> Moses seeing the glory of God in Exodus 34, David, or when the, the temple or the tabernacle was constructed and the, the glory cloud fell and nobody could enter because of the glory of God, and then when Solomon finished the temple and the glory fell on that, the glory of God fell, His presence was manifested and nobody could get in there. We have a better access to God than that. 
Because we in Christ can go directly to the throne of grace. Think about that. This is, this is an amazing truth. I wish I had more time to linger on. Um, but it's a wonderfully breathtaking truth. In Christ, we have greater access to God than Moses, than David, and Solomon. Why? Because we have a better and greater covenant. goes on to say, Yahweh is good to all, and His mercy is over all that He has made. That's simply saying the goodness of God to His creatures, especially His image bearers, cannot be denied. Man in his folly and sin will seek to suppress that truth that God is constantly showing His goodness, but it cannot be denied. His mercy is over all that he has made. God has a merciful disposition to the world. So, first exhortation, praise the greatness of God's works. The second, praise the greatness of God's character. The third, praise the greatness of God's people. Look again at verses 10 through 13. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, O Yahweh, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. So we see when we think of praising the greatness of God's kingdom, God's people will do what? We will give thanks to God. We will bless God. We will make known God's mighty deeds or His mighty acts. It's the, actually mighty acts. It's the same word as in verse 4. Except this time, these mighty acts are proclaimed to a different audience. Verse 4, it's to the next generation. In this verse here, in, in verse 12, we are making known the mighty acts of God to the whole world and all nations. It should be obvious when I say this, but the idea of missions is not necessarily a New Testament concept and emphasis. There's a difference, obviously, a massive difference. But God's desire for the nations to gather, to, to gather in and to worship Him alone has been God's aim from the very beginning. And God's people in the Old Testament, if they were thinking rightly, would have yearned for the peoples of the world to forsake their idolatry and turn in faith to Yahweh. But this ingathering of the nations back to the one true God has experienced a massive shift with the coming of the Messiah and the transformation of the people of God through the new covenant. So we are not calling, as, as the church, as believers, we are not calling the nations to come and see the glory of God in a temple in Jerusalem, but to behold the glory of God in the God-man Jesus of Nazareth, and to see it regularly displayed in God's new temple, the church, a temple that no longer is geographically bound to a small tract of land in Palestine. It's a temple that is more and more filling the earth and more, as more and more people become disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we are to make known then the glorious splendor of Yahweh's kingdom. Now, God's kingdom in the broadest sense, as John MacArthur says, refers to God, the eternal king, ruling over all from before creation and eternally thereafter. It's kind of a big, broad sense definition of the kingdom of God. So in one sense, the kingdom that David is speaking of here is God's heavenly, eternal kingdom by which he rules over and governs everything in all of history. But we also know 
that God's kingdom is also tied to God's rule on earth, which is expressed through God's king and is displayed in the place where God dwells on earth and his people walk in his ways. So God's heavenly kingdom and his earthly kingdom were never intended to be separated. Yet because of sin, as we know, the whole plan of redemption in history is in one major sense a reestablishing of God's kingdom on earth. So we could say in summary form that God's kingdom is where God dwells, where his appointed king reigns, where his rules are embraced, and where people are rightly related to him through covenant. And so in light of the dawning of the new covenant in Christ, God's kingdom, again, is no longer located in a, one geographic location in Palestine, because our king is in heaven, for in Jesus, both the divine rule and the human rule are brought together. The rule of God over all as king and the rule of God through his appointed human king are united in Jesus, so that Jesus is king both as God and as man. And now, another important point that I need to make, the church and the kingdom are not to be confused. The church is not the exact same thing as the kingdom of God. We have to say that. But I do think it's right to say that the church is the people of the kingdom. And so when we come to Christ by faith, we become citizens in the kingdom of Christ. Colossians 1, 13 through 14 says that the Father has delivered us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And so we enter into the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ, through faith in Christ, because in Christ we have forgiveness of sins and we are redeemed. We're bought out of our slavery to sin, we're bought out from under our, the penalty of our sin, and we're brought back into a relationship with God. All our rebellion, all our sin has been wiped away through the cross. And so let me just say here, if, you are, if you're listening to this by chance and you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, He stands ready to receive you as His own. He stands ready to forgive you of your sin, ready to wipe, wipe your sins away and not just give you a clean slate, but give you and credit to you all of His obedience to God so that when you trust in Him, you are fully accepted by God the Father and adopted into His family forever. <clears throat> if you have never trusted in Jesus, today is a great day to do so. Uh, turn to Him. He will receive you. And yet, we still wait and we long for, even though there, the kingdom is in a sense here already in Christ we long for the very public, the very visible manifestation of the kingdom of God at the end of time when Jesus returns and the kingdom is on display for all to see and it's established over the whole earth. We live in a time of tension and overlap. God's kingdom has dawned in Christ and through faith we are real members and participants. Yet we know the fullness of his kingdom. Its fullest expression, its fullest manifestation still lies ahead in the future. And we long for that day. We long for the kingdom of God to be publicly, visibly established overall. So the first exhortation again is we praise the greatness of God's works. The second exhortation is to praise the greatness of God's character. The third um, exhortation is to praise the greatness of God's kingdom. <clears throat> the fourth exhortation, verses 14 and six through 16, 
is we praise the greatness of God's provision. And look again. It says, The Lord Yahweh upholds all who were falling and raises up all who were bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. This praise here is a testimony to the fact that God provides for the most basic needs of all of his creatures. He provides. In a basic way, he meets all our basic needs. And we should not shy away from proclaiming this to the world when we preach the gospel. It's actually evidence of God showing favor that they don't deserve. Not saving favor yet, but still God be showing his goodness, being merciful. Um, God's common grace, as this is often called. Remember, Jesus said, you know, he causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust, the righteous and the unrighteous, God still shows goodness to a world that exists in hostile rebellion against Him. That is amazing. And we should let people know that, that though they are in rebellion against God and under His wrath, He has still, day by day, been showing them favor. He has not poured His wrath on them in its full yet. He, he, he is showing them that He is good. He is witnessing to them through basic provision of everyday needs. This is what Paul and Barnabas say when they are at Lystra and they're preaching the gospel and Paul had done a miracle. And so the people there think that, that Paul and Barnabas are the gods come down. Barnabas is Zeus and Paul must be Hermes because he's the one speaking. <clears throat> and so they try to make sacrifices to God and Paul and Barnabas are like, no, 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 no. You're totally missing the point. So Acts 14, listen to what Paul says in verses 15 through 17. He says, man, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things, this idolatry, this polytheism, this worship of many gods, that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that's in them. In past generations, listen to what Paul and Barnabas say, in past generations he allowed the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Like, we should be absolutely stunned that this is how God treats people who are worshiping false gods. But this is exactly what God does because he's good. He doesn't approve of their idolatry. And these folks, if they do not heed the message, they will receive the judgment that their sin deserves for worshiping false gods and turning away from the true God. But even though the world is in rebellion against God, God still shows his goodness in so many ways to people who are absolutely undeserving. And as Christians above all, we should feel that. So, again, the first exhortation, praise the greatness of God, God's works. The second one, praise the greatness of God's character. The third, praise the greatness of God's kingdom. The fourth, praise the greatness of God's provision. And lastly, verses 17 through 21, we're called to praise the greatness of God's salvation. Read with me. The Lord Yahweh is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. Yahweh is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. 
Yahweh preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of Yahweh, and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. I want to focus on one part of this for time's sake. Verse 18. Verse 18. He says, Yahweh fulfills... Sorry, verse 18. Yahweh is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. I remember back when I was in college, I had a lot of friends at different campus ministries and stuff like that. And, um, you know, they, you know, believers had some differences of opinion on things, but we had some good discussions uh, back and forth as we wrestled with scripture and trying to answer objections that people were raising um, against the Christian faith. <clears throat> and one of the things that we had a discussion over one time was the fact that one of my friends said, you know, well, God, he, he, he accepts everyone who, who just calls on him. You know, everyone who calls on God, God's going to, to accept. God's near. And I remember in that conversation pushing back on that and saying, well, that's, that's not exactly true. And why would I say that? Because we have to call upon God in a certain way in order for God to accept us. We don't come to God um, by our own designs, by our own imaginations. We come to God in the way He has prescribed for us and in no other way. We don't set the terms for coming to God. God sets the terms and we either accept them, accept those terms and come to Him as He's said it, or we don't come to Him. It's, it's that simple. And a verse like this is so very clear that Yahweh is near to all who call on him, but it's qualified. All who call on him in truth. So there is a way for us to experience the nearness of God if we call on him in truth. And again, we know John 14, 6, it's one of the most repeated and well-known verses in the New Testament, indeed the whole Bible, when Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The truth by which we draw near to God is what he has revealed in his word, and his word clearly testifies that we must come to God through faith in Jesus Christ. If we try to get close to God and experience, experience the nearness of God outside of Jesus, we will never experience the nearness of God. We will stay outside of His care, outside of His love, and we will stay under His wrath, rightly deserving of the judgment that we deserve for our sin. But again, God has made a way in Jesus for any person anywhere to come back to him if they will exercise faith in Christ. And when we exercise faith in Christ, again, it is, it is an empty-handed faith. We don't come to God saying, God, look at what I'm bringing you. And we say, God, I have nothing to bring. All I can do is come and say, God, all I can do is receive from you. All I can do is receive the provision that you have given in Jesus, forgiveness of sins, righteousness, justification, adoption into your family. You, Everything that I need for salvation is what God gives to me through Christ. I bring nothing to the table. Nothing. Uh, I think Mark said uh, recently that the only thing we bring is the sin that makes salvation necessary. That's all we contribute. 
We have nothing else to bring but our sin and say, God, my sin is what makes this necessary. But you promise that if I trust in Jesus, then I am forgiven. My sin is wiped away and I'm adopted into your family. I'm declared righteous and I have eternal life. And so, yes, God is near to all who call on him. So if you have, again, never called on God, call on him in truth, because that is how he will hear you and receive you. It is on his terms. We have violated his will and his law. We set no, no boundaries, no terms, no limits. God sets it all. And he has said so clearly, if you will come through my son, you know I will receive you. And we have verse 20. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. We are either going to be in Christ or we will be outside of Christ. In Christ, we know God preserves us and keeps us forever. But outside of Christ, there is nothing but eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. And so we end in verse 21 with David's kind of recommitment, redetermining how he's going to respond to God. He says, my mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever. If we are consumed with praising our God, then we will be moved necessarily to call other people to join us in that praise. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, what an amazing psalm that you have given us. God, your word is powerful, and there's so much here, God. There's so much more we could have considered and spent time in. But God, I trust that in your providence that what has been said and what has been covered is what you desired for us to hear, for me to say, for me to hear, God. Lord, I'm preaching this to myself as much as to anyone. So Lord, may your word have a full effect in our hearts and in our lives. God, may it transform us and make us more like Christ. May we have the sense that David did that we want to praise the greatness of our God in the greatness of your works and of your character and of your kingdom and of your provision and of your salvation. God, we could spend 10,000 lifetimes doing that and never exhaust the possibilities. So Lord, may our hearts be gripped Lord, even as we started out this psalm to say that great is the Lord and greatly to be praised and his greatness is unsearchable. And because of that, we will extol you. We will bless you forever and ever. Every day we will bless you. Whatever the day may bring, we will still bless you and praise you and praise your great name. And God, we know that you have set your seal to Jesus of Nazareth. And so we know that we cannot glorify you if we are not drawing attention to Jesus, if we are not making much of Jesus. So help us to do that first in our own heart and mind, that our, that our, our mind's attention and our heart's affection would be set in the right, on the right trajectory and have the right focus. But God, also in, in everything that we say, with every relationship that we have and everywhere that we go, God, help us be praising your greatness by making much of the Lord Jesus Christ. God, again, we commit our hearts and minds to you. Thank you for our church. Thank you, God, that we had a few moments to discuss your word and, and to unfold this amazing psalm, Psalm 145. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, folks, um, praise the Lord that this worked. And um, I, I pray that the Lord will continue to use his word to encourage you. Um, I look forward to hopefully the next Zoom meeting where we can at least all somewhat be together together 
and let's keep praying that in God's grace we'll be able to actually gather in person again as a church for that is far better and um, that is what will I think bring so much joy uh, to all our hearts so y'all have a great evening and uh, look forward to the next time